Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tipping no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Mark Kenny. I'm speaking today with Sanjay Senanayaka, one of the most recognised faces of ANU. He's Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases at ANU's College of Health and Medicine, and he's a regular media commentator. Sanjay, welcome to Democracy Sausage at last. Oh, look, uh, very happy to be here, Mark. I've long wanted to get you on to uh, to talk about uh, things and uh, never a better time than in the middle of a, a, a pandemic that's, um, you know, been uh, just such a challenge for the entire world and, and been handled quite well in this country. Did you ever imagine that in your lifetime you would or the world would see uh, a pathogen of this sort of danger and threat to, to the globe? Yes and no, Mark. I think uh, one reason that I got into the field of infectious diseases, I mean, there are, are a few reasons, but one of them was because I was so fascinated by the flu pandemic of 1918, the Spanish flu. Right. And in fact, very early in my medical career, I read a book by a New York Times reporter, uh, Gina Colata, called Flu which uh, just talked about the 1918 flu outbreak and the race subsequently to try and identify the virus from preserved bodies in permafrost. So it was just, it really captured my imagination. Did you have to be a medical expert to get the value of that book or was it a, a late Not at all. No, no, no. It's a very well written book for uh, people with all levels of knowledge. Wow. So I highly recommend it. Mm. And it really did capture my imagination. And and going forward into my career in infectious diseases, uh, I've been very conscious of pandemics. And in our field, we have been conscious of the pandemic threat. And we have seen little glimpses of a pandemic. So you know, technically, the swine flu pandemic of 2009 was, was a pandemic, but it didn't have, didn't cause the problems, the levels of concern and issues that we're seeing with COVID-19. 
Uh, SARS in 2003 was a pandemic. It was uh, an emerging infection that crossed international borders. But SARS, look, SARS is a, there's a, another whole question there. Why did SARS, which is a very similar coronavirus to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19, why did that disappear after about 8,000 cases? Now, part of it was that it was easier to control because you became really infectious later in the course of your illness. So if you were very quick to isolate someone with SARS, you would you could stop them from infecting other people. Whereas as we know with COVID, people are potentially infectious a couple of days before they develop symptoms. So that makes it a lot harder. But even then, SARS just disappeared from the world in 2004, and we haven't seen it since. So that's a big mystery. Mm. But all this is, is a big way of saying that, yes, we in our field as infectious diseases physicians, as epidemiologists, as public health physicians, uh, and in health bureaucracy, we've been aware that a pandemic could occur at any time. The issue, of course, is that it had been 100 years between pandemics, and really no one who's working in the field now was alive to experience it back then. And of course, it may not be the last time uh, going to the question about whether you expected to see it in your lifetime. I guess there's a, there's a fair bit of discussion about the possibility of of this lingering on, of this morphing into of you know the the the, the virus mutating, um, and and it being difficult to completely close off in the way that that SARS outbreak was closed off. Um, but also, there's the you know the the possibility of a of another outbreak of another virus. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think actually to complete my answer to your original question, so I think in, in summary, I was always prepared or always recognised that another pandemic could occur, but I was still kind of shocked when it did, yeah. <laughs> when COVID-19 appeared and and I've seen the consequences of the pandemic. In terms of your other question, Mark, look, we've had almost 400 new infections appear since about 1940. So we've had a lot of new infections appear. Now, as you know, the vast majority haven't caused a pandemic or concerns about a pandemic, but that can easily happen. So once COVID-19 goes away or is brought under control, we need to be on the lookout for the next pandemic. And how many of those were viruses as distinct from um, bacterium? Uh, look, I, I haven't got the exact count on me, but uh, I'd say the vast majority have been viruses, and a, a lot of it, a lot of them, are associated with spread from animals. So, and and that reflects the closer interaction with our increasingly populated world between humans and animals as we encroach on natural environments and habitats, etc. Because we've been warned for a long time, those of us who've been, you know, reading will have will have read many times and heard physicians warn many times of uh, antibiotic resistant bugs uh, in hospitals, infections that uh, are, you know becoming resistant to any sort of known treatments, and so it's it's kind of I don't know, it's puzzling to me in a way that we, you know, we, we have such inconsistency. I mean, take this comparison. Donald Trump shut down his pandemic task force, whatever it was called, you know, well before the, the this, this viral outbreak, uh, because he just decided, you know, it was a theoretical risk he didn't need to worry about. 
In Australia, for example, we're spending $80 billion, and it will probably be more like $100 billion by the time they start rolling out, on future submarines, which won't even basically enter service until the mid-2030s, to address a theoretical threat at that time. I'm not saying that there won't be any threats to Australia, but, I mean, these are very theoretical ideas at this stage. We don't have any trouble committing vast sums of money and resources to those kinds of threats down the track. And yet, as you say, there have been, what, 400 different, uh, you know, uh, diseases yep, that, yep, have, that have come right. out um, in the last, what is it, last 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it just strikes me as being a sort of a, one of those things where, we, you know, we, we're in, we invest in hardware, but we just, because we, what, we can't see viruses, we, we just sort of... Hope. I think part of it is one of the remarks I made earlier, Mark, in that the last pandemic, which was devastating to the world, was in 1918. And people, while we've got documentation of it, we don't have that living memory. It was a pretty and bad I, war in that year as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think there was, wasn't there? <laughs> Just wrapping up. Yeah. E- exactly, which actually made the whole situation yeah, of course. worse. Yeah, and there was a lot of returning soldiers carrying it and... and, and Oh, exactly, and limited resources because resources were being put into the war rather than to fight the pandemic. So there were were all those issues as well. But I think moving forward, a lot of uh, people who are now working in health, in fact, who are alive, everyone knows everything about COVID now, will not forget COVID. So I'm very hopeful that those sorts of issues that you mentioned will not happen again, at least for the foreseeable future. Now, I read somewhere recently that the coronavirus is quite common, that in fact it may even be present in the microbiome of most people, that is uh, in in the gut of people now. Is that right? Yeah. Look, uh, certainly more than the – not so much about the microbiome, if we just look at it as a circulating virus, about – one in five of common colds, just our you know little runny noses, bit of a sore throat that uh, we we get every year. Mm-hmm. About one in five of them can be attributed to four circulating coronaviruses that have been around for decades. So coronaviruses have been around for a while. They've almost certainly all come from animals, but uh, those four have uh, settled into a nice circulating pattern, giving us mild illnesses, but not doing too much more. But there have, of course, been three serious coronaviruses, obviously SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, SARS itself, and another one called MERS. Mm. What have we learned really from this crisis? It was I mean, there's been there's been a fair bit to learn, really. You said we know a lot about coronavirus now, the the COVID virus, um, but uh, it it was you know we we could sort of see that process playing out. If you think right back to the beginning, uh, when we were first hearing about this infection in Wuhan in China, uh, there was there was first it was suggested that it wasn't transmissible human to human. Uh, then it was for a long time, in, the authorities uh, insisted that. There was no evidence that it was transmissible in asymptomatic people. You mentioned before that one of the uh, really dangerous things about this is that it can be passed on in those days before uh, someone develops symptoms. And presumably in the days before someone doesn't develop symptoms, if they're one of those people who just doesn't produce symptoms, do they, can they then pass it on? Exactly. That's yeah. right. In terms of infectivity, we regard the asymptomatic person as similar to the person with symptoms. So really, 
what have we learned about it since then? If we if we if we look back, uh, it's it's um, it's obviously uh, morphing or mutating. So that that's a concern. We've learned that it's vastly more transmissible than was initially thought, and I guess we've learned that it's um, had a much more devastating. It's a much more dangerous disease to people as they get older. Yeah, look, I think we've we've learned so much uh, about the virus itself. And I think about our response to the virus, what things worked well, what things didn't work well, I guess if we thought about talk about viral issues, you're right, it seems absolutely ridiculous, February, sitting in February uh, 2021 here at the ANU that we were even considering that it wasn't transmissible between people. Mm. Uh, and that was seriously being talked about at, at the start. And because, of course, we knew that SARS was transmissible between people, but of, and of course, we want the evidence before we say these things, but I think it was always likely that it was going to be transmissible between people. Um, yeah, and as you say, the, was asymptomatic spread even a thing? And clearly, it turned out to be an important issue. And strains, strains have been... I think something unexpected. So when we talk about strains, or let, let's go back a step. When we talk about mutations, mm. all viruses mutate. So that's very common. In fact, everything mutates. Uh, we've got trillions of cells in our body. By the end of this interview, they probably would have mutated a bit. <laughs> so we'll be slightly different to the people who entered this interview. So viruses mutate, but they don't tend to bother us. What we mean by a strain is a mutation that acts differently in people. And with coronaviruses, we were of the belief that they were much slower at mutating than, say, the flu, maybe about five times less or five times slower than flu. But clearly what we've seen with the emergence of Brazilian P1, the UK and South African strains is that they have been able to mutate and turn into strains quite quickly because uh, certainly these strains seem to be more infectious and even have some impact on our immune response and potentially the vaccine response. So that is something we've learnt. And part of that could be just the sheer volume of infections that have been caused in the last 12 months. Uh, So in the US, for instance, they recently announced that out of their 25 million cases, for each case that's been confirmed, there are probably three that haven't been. So really, the US is looking at about 100 million cases. And if you extrapolate that to the rest of the world, that's about half a billion cases of COVID in a very short period of time. And that gives the virus a lot of time to mutate. Another theory is if it's transmitting and gets into people with low immune systems, while they may not necessarily get really, really sick with it, they might take longer to get rid of the virus and the virus might replicate in them for longer periods of time. And that might also drive mutations leading to all these different strains. So look, there probably are so many things uh, about this virus that we've learned in the last year, but they are some of them. And another one would be uh, just that it it has this tail, this long term effect on some patients. Some people are reporting symptoms for a long time after they've notionally recovered. So even with SARS, for uh, 
you know, maybe a good six months or so afterwards, there were people with persisting sort of lung damage, mm-hmm. which seemed to settle down. But you are quite right. We've got this term long COVID. Mm-hmm. It seems to occur in people who've had a more severe illness, but it doesn't have to. And people can get fluctuating symptoms, which I think is part of the the worst part of it, because you think you've gotten over it because you feel pretty well for a couple of days, and then it then it comes back, and it's quite can be a variety of different symptoms from just fatigue, brain fog, joint aches and pains, uh, chest pains, shortness of breath, and particularly for young people who had a relatively mild illness who are used to being very active, uh, working, this can have a really debilitating not just physical but mental impact on them. But hopefully, when we look at these people in a year's time it would largely have resolved. But certainly, yes, there's lung damage there. Some of them from a Chinese cohort who were uh, hospitalized, a good proportion of them had some kidney damage as well, which again, we hope uh, improves. But this is an infection that you do not want to get. Yes, you might be a healthy young person. Yes, you might have a mild illness. And yes, you might get over it quickly. But that's not guaranteed. It's certainly something I do not want to get. And I'm, uh, I was recently talking to one of my uh, nursing colleagues, her father, who is overseas, elderly gentleman. He got COVID. And he got over the acute illness. I don't think he had to go to hospital from memory. But it's probably about two months later and the poor man can't taste food. You know, this is something we take Mm. for granted, tasting food. And it really, once it's taken away from you, you realize that it's a fundamental joy of life. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of people who wouldn't want to live if they can't taste food. And and, and are his physicians telling him, I guess you don't know, but uh, will that that change? Is there an expectation or a hope that that will change? Well, we don't know. We we would hope, as I said, uh, a lot of the SARS patients, they didn't have these specific problems by about six months or so after their illness, things seemed to settle down. So I really hope that is the case. I wonder if uh, some of these people who are panicking so much, uh, uh, spreading so much fear about vaccines, actually think too deeply about what it would be like to actually get the disease or for loved ones to get the disease. With any intervention, be it a vaccine or a medication, there will always be risks and side effects, but it's always, uh, you have to balance it, uh, benefits versus risks. And with COVID, the benefits of a vaccine far outweigh the risks. Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. 
Welcome back. Now, we were talking before the break about things we've learnt about, that the medical profession has learnt about COVID-19. Another uh, sort of family of revelations, I suppose, is the way it spreads uh, on surfaces. It took, it took a long time, it seemed to me, to, for there to, to develop a consensus about um, how surfaces needed to be cleaned and how long the virus was, was able to live on surfaces. And, of course, this is related also to the aerosol um, spreading of the disease, the extent to which uh, moisture particles coming from people in normal breathing and talk, in, in, in coughing and sneezing and so forth, the extent to which these settle on surfaces as well or, 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 or are breathed in by yeah. other people. So it's all been, um, I guess, an enormous kind of live experiment really that we've been learning from all the way through. Yes, uh, look, certainly from an infection control point of view, particularly in healthcare facilities, you want to have that down pat in terms of whether the virus is viable on surfaces and how, how to clean them. Uh, the good news is it's very easy to clean surfaces uh, to kill the virus, which uh, is very good just using standard techniques and uh, uh, standard anti-infective detergents, those sorts of things. Now, but talking about surfaces as well, I think it's really important to remember that it's still mainly transmitted from person to person. Right. So that's, that's really important. There have been no huge outbreaks associated where we think a contaminated surface has been the main source. So it's, it's still about person to person. And the pivotal study was probably the, the New England Journal study where they showed on different surfaces the virus can be viable up to 72 hours. But again, there are some caveats on that. If that was a very sort of, they were very experimental conditions, so not real life conditions. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that might optimize the survival of the virus. And the other thing, of course, is to get infected with a virus or any uh, type of pathogen, even a bacterium, you need a certain dose. So maybe one viral particle may not be enough. We suspect it might be somewhere between 100 and 1,000 viral particles for SARS-CoV-2 and for SARS, somewhere in that ballpark. And that explains the – that goes some way, in my mind at least, and tell me if I'm wrong here, in explaining why there's been so much emphasis placed on the duration of contact with another person, you know, we've we've had the two meter rule, the one point five meter rule, yeah, and yeah. and and all of that, and um, it it always puzzled me in the beginning uh, the way you know the, there was a fairly clear distinction made between yes. someone you were spending an hour with and someone you were spending say two or three minutes buying a coffee from or whatever. Uh, presumably, no. that goes to that question about how much viral content you could take on, theoretically. Exactly, exactly. And that infectious dose, as we call it. So, you know, the longer you spend with someone who's infectious, the more virus you're likely to be exposed to, right. which will uh, make it more certain that you will be infected with it. And certainly when it comes to the surfaces as well, yes, a virus might be detectable at three days, but the dose at that stage might be very, very low. A lot of it might have degraded. So, if you do come into contact with an infected surface at three days, you're much you're at a much lower risk than say coming uh, at one day into contact with that surface. But having said that, even though it's person to person, that's the most important thing. We have to be careful, particularly in aged care facilities and healthcare facilities, and make sure those surfaces are clean. Make sure we use hand sanitizer whenever we can. 
And that's been, uh, as, you, as you know, if you go into Canberra now, any sh- store or uh, restaurant, the hand sanitizers there, which I think is uh, wonderful. Yeah, and it's, uh, I'd be interested to hear what, what's happened in relation to other diseases uh, because there is a much greater emphasis on hand hygiene uh, and, uh, and much less incidental contact between people. So, you know, the normal, the normal diseases, as you were talking about, that circulate around the sniffles and everything from the flu down to, to sort of uh, transient colds and the like, uh, presumably, I mean, we're not in that season yet, but um, one imagines that it's pretty hard to get a cold if you're, if you're um, observing all of these new protocols. Oh, look, absolutely. And I, I think flu is the, the best example of this. We had a, a nothing flu year in 2020. We had a well over, I haven't got the exact figures in front of me, but we had a well over 90% reduction compared to the previous year. There was hardly any flu activity, hardly anyone was admitted to hospital uh, in the ACT with influenza. Whereas the year before, and I'm again, I don't have the figures in front of me, but I remember it was a quite striking number of actual flu-related fatalities across Australia the year before. Uh, you know, and when I say striking, I mean in comparison to the levels of concern that we had about the fatality rate from COVID through the, the middle of last year. Mm. And I remember, you know, some people were making the point that that. Uh, the flu the previous year had been, I think, 350, 353, that kind of number mm. um, uh, of people that had died. Now, a lot of those people may have been very much toward the end of their lives and had other health mm. complications and the like. Yeah. But, uh, yes, it's uh, it's not a, any of these diseases if they become combined with pre-existing uh, vulnerabilities, I guess, uh, uh, are a big threat to some people. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And we see that with, with, with COVID, yeah. You, all it needs is if you have an unstable heart, kidneys or lungs, mm. and uh, you, all you need is one little factor like an infection to get in there just to tip the balance, uh, not in your favour, and it leads to people's demise. So that definitely happened. But, and certainly with, with flu, it, it was absolutely extraordinary at the reduction we saw. It's pro- it, could be multifactorial, increased vaccine uptake as, as well, but certainly the physical distancing would have had uh, an enormous impact on that. The other interesting thing we saw was that RSV, which is another type of viral infection, it causes uh, an infection in children called bronchiolitis in very young children. That normally starts just before the flu, but we really only saw a peak late last year, which was uh, very interesting. And that's kind of hard to explain too. So there've been some, the presence of COVID, the interventions we've put in for COVID have had an impact on the, I guess, month to month epidemiology with uh, other respiratory viruses we commonly see. Now, a lot's been made of how well Australia's handled this and definitely we've made uh, a virtue of being an island and uh, we've uh, our governments to have pulled together in ways like they've never pulled together before almost and, and performed quite well. But was there, have we been lucky also? I mean, was there a uh, somewhat conservative approach taken by health authorities initially? Uh, we were talking before about how long it took to kind of nail down whether there was person-to-person transmission um, 
and and what the method of that transmission was. And it seemed to me that Brendan Murphy and Co were quite resistant to the idea of masks for quite a long time. I mean, this is sort of largely forgotten now, but um, the idea of mandatory mask wearing, which subsequently became accepted, was uh, was resisted at least at the national level for some time. So I, I wonder what whether, whether you agree with that. I think I'm, I'm on the record as, as saying on a number of occasions what we are learning about COVID-19, what we have learned in 2020 and what we will learn in 2021 and 2022 will form the basis of the textbook for the next pandemic. So I think this was a real learning experience for everyone, despite the advances in infectious diseases despite the flu pandemic of 1918 where we knew quite a lot we've learned a heck of a lot more in these last couple of years and if we did things again i think we would do things differently in terms of masks right at the start of last year the data for masks there was some data but it wasn't super convincing but by the middle of last year, the data were definitely more convincing mm. that mandatory mask wearing where you've got high levels of community transmission and you can't safely physically distance, that masks in conjunction with other measures will have a beneficial impact on the outbreak. So we know that now, but we didn't definitively know that then. And it seems to have been a factor in some of these Asian countries that have also done well. I'm thinking of places like Taiwan and Vietnam. Uh, a number of these countries have done well. And these are places where mask wearing has been uh, culturally more normal for reasons of screening out particulates and even for protection from the sun. You know, people on scooters and the like, mask wearing, as anyone knows, has travelled around some of those places, is 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 fairly commonplace even outside of uh, there being an outbreak. So, uh, and plus those places, those countries had dealt with some of those outbreaks you were talking about, SARS and MERS. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, with Asian countries, it would have been quite, it has been quite common if you, you travel to places like Hong Kong, like Singapore, China, you'll see a lot of people wearing masks. Mm. They wouldn't uh, give it a second thought for, for various reasons. And uh, as for previous experiences with coronaviruses, South Korea, which is, had a, done a very good job amongst the global community at controlling COVID, suffered uh, a really bad outbreak of MERS, so uh, one of the uh, serious coronaviruses, uh, a couple of years ago. And in fact, they, had, they were about to start or had just completed a MERS exercise when they started getting cases of COVID. So they were really well prepared uh, for this outbreak. Now, let's talk about messaging because we're now moving into this phase and let's hope that we continue moving into this phase mm. rather than have other setbacks uh, of, uh, of the vaccine rollout. It's a big preoccupation for the government and for everyone else. Um, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison said at the press club a couple of days ago that um, uh, vulnerable uh, people will start getting this vaccine in the end of February, so the end of this month, rolling into March, and everyone who wants a vaccination will have had it by October, which is which is a, an ambitious and a massive uh, logistical exercise. How important is public confidence in that? And I'm particularly thinking of a number of people, some prominent people who've been saying they're not going to get 
not going to take the vaccination. They don't believe it's necessary. Or, and you, you've had others raising doubts about efficacy. And uh, there's someone like Craig Kelly, uh, a, a Liberal member of Parliament, is advocating other other medicines as well. Um, I'm just wondering, what, what's your view about public confidence here? We're not making the vaccination compulsory, but we do want as many people to take it as possible. Yeah, Mark, I think you've hit the nail on the head with your last remark that the vaccine isn't going to be mandatory. So people have to willingly take it. So we do have to convince them to take it. Now, there have been a couple of vaccine surveys, including one from the ANU, which suggested that probably about 80% of people will definitely take it or are likely to take it. And the remainder either will never take it or are undecided or are hesitant. So there, there is an opportunity with good messaging to try and convince more people to get the vaccine. In terms of achieving herd immunity, we need to get the vir- We need to get about sixty percent of people vaccinated. Now that's assuming that the efficacy figures we hear talked about, so ninety-five percent with uh, the RNA vaccines yeah. and you know sixty-two percent with AstraZeneca. If they don't just mean that that's it's 95% or 62% effective at preventing symptomatic infection from COVID, but also has the same efficacy at stopping transmission, if that is true, then we need to get about 60% of the population. And that's a pretty critical detail that we're yet to know, isn't it? That's right. That's right. But more data are emerging and it is looking promising. And the reality is if a vaccine is 95% effective at stopping you from getting sick with COVID, it's it's very likely to have a very big impact on transmission. It may not have the same degree of impact, but it likely is. It is likely to have a, a very big impact. Can can these vaccines be doubled up on? Is that is that possible, or is there any clinical benefit from that? Uh, doubled up in the sense uh, you get the two doses of Pfizer, and then you go on to have two doses of AstraZeneca. Is that what you mean? Or? Perhaps, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, no, we, we don't know the answer. I'm just wondering that. if I've got enough arm space to get them all, you see. Yeah. Oh, you you got four <laughs> limbs. <laughs> so uh, we don't know the answer yet, but the UK and the Russians are exploring whether one dose of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine followed by another dose of the Sputnik vaccine, which are both vaccines that use adenoviruses mm. to sort of carry the genetic material, the spike protein, whether that will be... Uh, beneficial. So it is being explored at the moment, but we don't know the answers yet. Does it surprise you, though, going back to those figures about the you know fifth of the population, roughly, who is highly sceptical or resistant, does that surprise you given what we've been discussing, the severity of this disease, the death toll around the place? I mean, it strikes me as odd that some populations have taken more literally the COVID threat than others. If I think of one that's very similar to us, Britain, you can see a serious death toll, a massive suffering, the NHS overload and everything else from their first wave. And then you can see this significant relaxation of the of the population through the English summer, people travelling to Italy and other places on the continent, um, a, a you know a sort of a cavalier attitude that develops quite different really from I think the mentality that has prevailed in Australia even though we had a far more mild first wave I, I just I'm still struggling to understand w- what the cultural differences are here and and why it is that some people even faced with the 
death toll that we now see around the world, that some people still think the risk of the vaccine is greater than the, the, the threat of the actual disease. Yeah, no, it is fascinating. It's been a completely different approach in the European and US responses compared to, say, Australia and New Zealand. Different as in stuffed up completely. Yeah. yeah, no, no, absolutely. Mm. We have done very well. They have done very badly. Mm. I mean, as simple as that. Mm. I think there are a number of reasons. And I think part of it is, it, particularly if you look at the, the US scenario, is we have got a very good relationship between our health authorities and our political leaders. Mm. The, our political leaders have been listening to their chief medical officers or chief health officers and epidemiologists and infectious and diseases. And made, made an explicit virtue of that from the beginning, didn't they? That's right. Yeah. You know, you don't see a, the, the prime minister talking about COVID generally or a premier or chief minister without their chief medical officer or chief health yeah. officer by their side. So I think that has made a, a big difference. And also as a member of the public, when you see that imagery – you maybe subliminally recognise that relationship as well and that fills you with more more confidence too. And you did touch on it earlier, Mark. I think having national cabinet has been a really important part of our response, particularly at the start. Obviously now we can see some fracturing in certain with certain issues about COVID and, and other things. But early on, to see all our political le leaders from state, territory and federal levels stand up next to their uh, chief medical and chief health officers and all give the same message, that was very powerful. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also the National Cabinet is, has been a kind of a soft piece of architecture in the sense that more like a tent than a brick building. And mm. to that extent, it's actually been able to bend and flex to absorb some of these differences. So if WA or Queensland, or in both cases, they've done this, you know, taken a much more kind of bolshy attitude about their borders, yes. the Prime Minister may have had different views and various minister has, ministers have attacked them, but the structure itself has essentially accommodated all of these things. There's, it, perhaps it's a function of the Federation actually working uh, very well through this process. But you're right. I think all of that has, um, has, has lent a, um, it, well, for a start, it's dialed down the political hostility. Yeah. You know, the sort of, it's dialed down politics generally and dialed up problem solving. Um, and, um, and I think people have, you know, let that, the, the, the members of the National Cabinet haven't seen the, 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 the um, structure break apart as a result of disagreement around the edges. No, no, exactly. And I like your tent analogy. That's, that's very nice. Uh, and, of course, if you look at the US again, now even if all the governors and the president, they all got on well with each other, getting all 51 of them around a table at least once a week, if not more frequently, or even once a fortnight, is is impossible. It's just too many people, too many views. So even though we are geographically a large country, we, in terms of our population, we're quite small. So we can manage that. And even with our medical experts, if you look at a, all the states and territories and at a federal level, the important people know each other. 
and yeah. they get along quite well and they understand each other. And I think those relationships, those almost corridor conversations and uh, just informal understanding of each other and respect for each other has just made it that much easier in Australia compared yeah. to other parts of the world. Yeah, I agree. So we started out more, we started out less divided and ended up more united, which is yeah. <laughs> perhaps not all that surprising. Look, I know you have to go, but just one final uh, question about uh, Craig Kelly in particular. Yes. Um, he's been backed up by um, Emeritus Professor Robert Clancy from Newcastle University. Uh, he's, uh, Clancy says that um, Craig Kelly, who's under a lot of it, uh, you know, getting a lot of criticism from all sides about the various things he's had to say about masks and, and, and vaccines and other treatments, um, Clancy says he doesn't necessarily agree with all of that, but he does think that Craig Kelly is absolutely right in advocating ivermectin and the uh, the other one, hydroxychloroquine, uh, as treatments that would go along with uh, the, the the vaccine. That's kind of an interesting observation for him to make. I, I'm not necessarily putting you on the spot to mm. sort of second guess that medical judgment, but. They are the kinds of things, in fact, they may be specifically the things that Donald Trump was given when he uh, had what was a relatively rapid ascent out of COVID illness. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to think uh, about Donald Trump. He got uh, remdesivir, Regeneron monoclonal antibodies, dexamethasone. I'm not sure he got hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, I think he'd been taking that beforehand, so right. it hadn't done much for him in the way of uh, preventing right. it. Yeah, look, I think it is really important for us as you know, medical experts and epidemiologists, as we talked about earlier in this conversation, to display humility and not hubris when it comes to this pandemic, because we clearly don't know everything. There have been curveballs thrown at us by the, the the virus that we didn't necessarily anticipate. So, if someone says this could work, I I, I try to be very objective, mm. even if it on the face of it seems very unlikely and mm. to see what the data shows. And it really, there have been a lot of good studies with hydroxychloroquine and its efficacy does not seem to favour its use. In no, it COVID didn't do anything 19. for, as I say, it didn't do yeah. anything to keep Trump, you know, uh, to protect him from That's getting right. the honours. Yeah, and, and bigger studies didn't really show an efficacy. Ivermectin was certainly worth talking about because in the laboratory setting, it does reduce it does kill covid it reduces the amount of virus compared to a control so it is it does do that but it was doing it at levels that were that where you would need far higher doses than you normally give to a human being right to to achieve that there have been some studies about ivermectin some randomized controlled trials uh, one in egypt uh, then a, a smaller one uh, in the Middle East from memory. And there was a retrospective trial in from Florida that got published in CHEST that all showed some benefit of ivermectin. One of the randomized controlled trials showed that it was slightly better than it was being compared to hydroxychloroquine and showed that it was slightly better than hydroxychloroquine. But as I said, hydroxychloroquine doesn't seem to be that effective. Mm. The retrospective trial that got or study that got published in CHEST from Florida did show a benefit, but the issue was some of these patients got steroids and steroids have been definitely shown to make a difference in people who are really sick with COVID to show a big impact. 
So there are some data on the face of it which show that ivermectin has some benefit, but a lot of those studies have got some limitations. So I don't know if we're ready to say that ivermectin is definitely good for COVID-19. Sanjay Senanaika, thank you so much for being on Democracy Sausage. It's been absolutely fascinating uh, talking about all of these things uh, and, and we could uh, continue doing so for a while because uh, I just find all this so fascinating. And, and as you say, it's uh, I really like your point about being open to the discussion and not mm. showing hubris and, and uh, uh, being prepared to look at what whatever is put forward yes, sure. uh, because it, that's been really the trajectory of this whole thing and it's been Great to talk about it with you today. So thank you. Oh, no, pleasure. It was really, really nice to come here. We'll look forward to doing so again at some point, uh, perhaps uh, when we see the vaccine uh, proceeding uh, and, and just see how that's going. And let's hope that there aren't any any major problems with that, either in terms of supply mm. or perhaps the uh, the emergence of a variant that uh, for which the vaccine is less effective or, or some such development like that. Yeah. Thanks very much, and thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage. Uh, I'll be back uh, Tuesday of next week. We're, we're moving from Monday to Tuesday in terms of when we produce the early version of uh, Democracy Sausage, so uh, look forward to talking to you then. Until then, bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.